I'm Matsudiso, a musician, songwriter, producer and composer. I also teach. I'm fascinated by process, how we make what we make, why we make what we make. As a musician, I'm always learning from and inspired by other creatives, other musicians, artists, the arts itself, people. In short, life all inform the music I make. And I think that learning from others enriches not only our own art, but the arts. And why holding up the ladder? Well, because we're all trying to get somewhere and I think we build something stronger if we help each other. If we hold up the ladder rather than pull it up from under us as we climb. I'll be talking to all kinds of creatives about process, lessons learned, things that inspire us, the music we're listening to, what makes us who we are and the help we've had along the way. So join me as we climb, holding up the ladder. Well, we've come to the end of season two and it's been a really special season for me. I hope you've also enjoyed it. Season one felt like a test run for me in many ways, with lots of amazing guests, but season two has felt like I got my stride and it's been a season of life imitating art, imitating life. It's why I chose not to have another guest, but rather tie up the season as a whole tell you some stuff I've learned in the hopes that it will speak to you and perhaps inspire you too in some way. When I was choosing guests for the season, I was looking for two things, creatives whose work inspires me and people who work across a range of different disciplines. None of the guests are particularly connected in terms of their practice, yet somehow there was a theme that ran across the whole season, perhaps because of the questions I've been pondering so I was subconsciously steering the conversations in a certain way. As my guest from episode 10, Shruti Kumar said, a global pandemic has put us in a time of self-reflection. So with that in mind, I want to talk about two reoccurring themes. Firstly, valuing the arts. And secondly, how that impacts how we value ourselves. And as I ponder these ideas, I'll intersperse them with guest conversations. I should probably say that I'm still working this all out, so I may sound like I'm thinking out loud and I may also change my mind later down the line. But for now, this is where I'm at. So what of valuing the arts? My guest on episode 7, Makoto Fujimura, was a really pivotal conversation for me. He put words to things I've been thinking about for a long time. And as you'll hear me say in this excerpt, reading his work in some way gave me permission to be as if I needed someone to tell me, you're not crazy, the things you've been thinking about are real. And I realised that that's what artists do. They give word, through music, imagery, movement, acting and so on, to the things we've been feeling inside, but may not have been able to previously articulate. I was reading two of your articles um, on art, love and beauty, and you, you said something that really struck me, you know, just why art matters. And, um, you know, we often talk about or you talk about the argument against utilitarian pragmatism, like does it have a use? What's the function? And you say uh, the arts are completely indispensable precisely because they are useless in the utilitarian sense. Yeah. <laughs> and and I love that. I, I felt like reading your work is giving me permission to be to pursue the art that I do even more. And I, and I love it, you know, so. Talk to me about that because, yeah. you know, you've talked about, you know, th- this culture care, but why art matters. And the, another thing I just want to say, because I love what you said, you said artists are the canaries in the coal mine. They smell the poison and start singing. And I, and I think about, you know, music, for example, 
and and say the music the musicians of the of the 70s and how all these songs that spoke about culture and and spoke about a world a world that we wanted to look different you know so talk to me about why art is so completely indispensable i love it yeah so i think that's part of our industrialized uh, way of looking for efficiencies and purposefulness right and and we have forgotten that um the most important thing that we will remember on our deathbeds is not the accomplishments, the resumes, the, you know, how many cars you have in your parking lot. It's these intangibles, conversations, uh, it's, it's relationships, it's, it's, it's things that you cannot market, right? So the marketing, you know, people are trying to get at that, right? To, to, to accentuate the transcendence of an object that you don't need <laughs> in order for you to feel connected with it. And that's, that's the marketing path. Now we, we gotten to a point where we have lost entirely the value of that experience, that intangible experience that marketing team is trying to use. So that marketing is no longer successful or, or even, you know, it doesn't produce any, you know, reaction because we're numb to everything being sold us that way. Now, artists are kind of type of people um, who have resisted this instinctively, whether you know it or not, you, you have said that I have been given a certain gift and it is not to be commoditized, right? And there's nothing wrong with commoditizing yet. We need to do it to pay rent, um, the, you know, or do something else to pay rent. But, but art fundamentally is a gift. And this is what Lewis Hyde argues, H-Y-D-E in the book, The Gift, which is a book that I, when I'm mentoring a young artist, I always start with that. Um, Lewis Hyde notes this, that art is not a commodity, but a gift. And gift fundamentally has to be the, uh, the, the, the center of any generative activity, including capitalism. <laughs> he, he argues that, you know, this is not a, you know, uh, kind of a Marxist uh, anti-capitalist statement. It's, it's essential to capitalism to have artists be artists because otherwise the marketing cannot work. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't create, artists are creating transcendence of our time and they're capturing something about what, what we need as human beings to be fully human. You know, so if the industrial revolution has caused us to be seen as machines, efficient and purposeful, then we have to recover that sense of being fully human. And who's doing that? It's the artists. They, they have rebelled, they have kind of resisted. And whether we know it or not, we have been creating things that doesn't make sense to the industrial sense. Again, nothing wrong with making that into a transactional object, you know, setting your paintings and music and so forth. But if you lose the fundamental reality of your art being a gift to yourself and to the world, then you lose the very heart of why you're creating to begin with. So if we move away from viewing life in a transactional way, move away from the commodification of human interactions, move away from placing utilitarian value with somewhat arbitrary characteristics on one human being's societal contribution over another, and instead think of how we can create societies where all human beings flourish, 
to go beyond what psychologist Maslow describes as a hierarchy of needs, you know, the basic needs of food, shelter and security, then art plays a central and vital role. Artists are no longer rebels, we're no longer on the margins, but are actually looked to as examples of what's possible when we're free to explore the realms of our creativity. There's a great line in the Jane Campion film Bright Star about the English poet John Keats, where his friend, writer Charles Brown, says to Keats's love interest, Fanny Braun, something along the lines of, please don't disturb us if you see us lying on the grass staring into space, we're actually working. That line resonated so much with me because so many of my ideas come from lying on the grass staring into space. Because in that place, from that daydreaming, I'm creating, I'm formulating ideas. What happens when you or I are allowed to lay on the proverbial grass, stare up at the sky and dream? Well, then we have people like Michelangelo sculpting David that was hewn from two other sculptors' discarded marble. We have artists that speak truth to power. We have poets or African griots who narrate our society's history, who speak of our humanity. We have artists who highlight injustice and create anthems for an era. Marvin Gaye sings What's Going On. Billie Holiday sings about the horrors of lynching with strange fruit. Chilean folk singer Victor Yara narrates the plight of Chile's poor and disenfranchised and the injustices of Pinochet's dictatorship. My guitar is not for the rich, he said. No, nothing like that. My song is of the ladder we are building to reach the stars. His simple yet profound words were considered threatening enough that he was murdered by Chilean authorities in 1973. We dance like Alvin Ailey's famed choreography Revelations that speaks of the African-American experience. We use photography to challenge and speak out against gender-based violence and society's perceptions of gender and masculinity, like South African photographer Leroy Jason, who joined me in episode five. You know, I was... I read somewhere the statistics. Uh, South Africa has the highest rape statistics in the world. Yes. Which is, I mean, yeah, it's, it's extremely problematic. And you, I mean, there are a few pictures that I want to talk to you about. You have some of like uh, this woman in a bath and the bath is full of blood and there's like a, a cow head there. Yes. And then there's another image of a woman um, with like a gash on her face and it's kind of blood streaming down her face you, they're kind of staged aren't they like is, is it an actual cut on her face or was it blood work that was yeah, yeah it was all staged um, so tell so, me a bit about that talk about your process through that and again but why is it so important to talk about this sort of as you call it a war on women I started looking at how I how I saw men and uncles treat their women and I also wanted to understand that we had I was also, I was on the tipping point of just understanding that we had to recondition our way of thinking altogether. Mm -hmm. uh, it wasn't just a trashy behavior. It was just like this thing that we considered being African. It wasn't being African. It wasn't being African to segregate our women and, 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 um, and have this entitlement um, over individuals that are people just as we are. We got dehumanized as male men. I understand historically um, where the only time a man ever felt like he was a man was coming back home, you know, um, because he'd be dehumanized outside of that in his workplace where he 
Um, and that's why I used uh, the a cow's head because to, to illustrate how beastly we are um, and in the way in which we treated our women. But also the fact that when you take her horns off of a cow, it's still a cow, you know? Um, you know, a bull's horns off of the cow, and it's still, it's all the same thing, you know? And that's why you'll find all of, all of those images, all the frames, the, the, I would always keep the horns somewhere in the frame. I see. We use fiction like Indian writer Arundhati Roy to talk about struggles in politics and power in India. We rap like Sri Lankan British artist MIA about the plight of refugees and the political struggles of Tamils in Sri Lanka. And from a tiny rural village on a Caribbean island, one mixed race man named Bob Marley sings One Love and its sound still resounds across the earth. Artists are, as Shruti Kumar said in our conversation just last week, orators of our history. All over the world, communities use the arts to give voice to their cultural, political and societal history. Some are celebrated. I went to see Lebanese violinist and composer Layal Shaker, who spoke about the fact that in the Middle East, poets are considered to be like rock stars. They fill stadiums. Some are loathed, some are ignored, some are even killed. Many are lauded posthumously. Yet in all of it, if we understand the importance of art in a society that seeks flourishing over commodity, connection over capital, then art and its artists become a bridge. And in this place, we also get to present an alternative view, a new way to see the world as it could be. When my guest from episode three, B.T. Wolf, followed her own musical curiosity because she had a family member with dementia, this curiosity inadvertently led her to help pioneer dementia research, so much so that leading scientists invited her to Stanford so that she could share her findings. It's funny, but after I saw your exhibition and you had mentioned Oliver Sacks, I went and read Musicophilia. But, um, but the work you have done in dementia, because I mean, that book is so interesting about the power of music, but from, a, I guess, a neuroscience perspective, um, can you tell us a little bit about like why you got into music and dementia? And I know that I think you ended up at Stanford because of it and just how something so simple can be so powerful. Absolutely. I mean, I think the, the fascinating thing is I think we all know that music um, runs very deep. And I think so many people have had amazing experiences where they've seen that but there's also that element of you know we need we need science to back it up so what i loved um about what oliver sacks contributed and he contributed so much was this understanding of how deep music went or how deep music goes but from a neurological standpoint um, and so he really grounded what a lot of us feel intuitively in science, you know, um, but in a very humanizing way. 
Um, and so I'd been reading about, you know, these amazing case studies that he, as you know, and by the way, I'm amazed and very impressed you read Musicophilia because a lot of people just find it so dense. Um, so well, yeah. well done you. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I was reading it and then rereading it and, you know, just thinking, wow, there's really no greater application of music than this, you know. You're literally using music to to bring someone who is otherwise sort of seemingly, you know, um, completely locked, and you're unlocking. Your, your, there's this way in that music provides, and you're bringing this person back. And just how incredibly moving um, is that? You know, so it it really, really um, imprinted on me, and. But I wasn't thinking, okay, I'm going to go off and do anything in that area. You know, it wasn't part of my <laughs> my plan. Um, but when I found out that family members had dementia and I'd obviously, you know, fresh in my mind, I had all these examples of Oliver using music for dementia and Alzheimer's, typically familiar music, so music that would trigger a memory. Um, but he'd theorized that, you know, music should not have to be familiar to exert its emotional pull. He just hadn't tested it. So I thought, okay, well, you know, when I'm next visiting my grandma or father-in-law, whoever, you know, whoever it was, I'll bring the guitar and I'll play some songs and see what happens. Um, and the responses to that, particularly with the, in the case of my father-in-law, who was living in a, a Portuguese care home, um, and I ended up, you know, actually playing to the whole ward with you know, of people living with dementia and Alzheimer's because the director had asked if, you know, I wouldn't mind playing to everyone. And I sort of suddenly realized as I started, you know, oh, the, you know, these songs are new. Um, so, you know, no one here would know them. And they're in another language. You know, everyone was Portuguese apart from this relative. Um, so there won't even be a, a linguistic connection. Um, so I really had no expectations of, you know, what was going to happen. Uh, but I performed a set and I was like, you know, looking around and people were clapping and chatting and waking up and engaging. And it just felt like any, any normal performance, but I'm in a care home and I got to the end of it. And the, you know, the director said, in the 10 years he'd been there it was the best he'd seen the group and I felt at that point like there was a responsibility to take it further you know like I'd seen something that was it would expand the knowledge uh, and the kind of awareness around the power of music by looking at music um, you know uh, not attached to memory just music for music's sake um, and so that ended up becoming this you know, research project that I did in the UK and I went to, you know, care homes all, the, all across the UK and performed a set of original music live. And then we did a follow-up session with the same songs on headsets and the results were, were just astounding. Um, wow. And I saw reactions to music. I've, you know, uh, I, I still to this day, you know, are some of the most incredible reactions to music I've ever seen. And and those really imprinted on me. And so this research project, which, you know, I, again, didn't have any expectations of or, you know, how it was going to sort of unfold, 
Um, but that then started getting picked up by, you know, Stanford and all these top uh, neuroscientists and research institutes. Um, and I found myself, you know, sitting with, with these people and they were picking my brain on the subject. And I thought, okay, you know, this is fascinating. And um, so, you know, that study en ended up contributing um, to, to a lot of what was out there. Um, and then it, you know, was formed into this charity uh, that is now actively getting music in all care homes in the UK uh, by the end of next year. Um, so, wow. yeah, so, you know, it was, uh, it was one of those examples, and I think I've had a few in my life, of um, not silencing that inner voice, you know, that says, hey, there's something here, you know, you've got to pull this thread and, and see, you know, where it takes you. Um, because I think we do that, you know, we can do that so often we say, oh no, but I'm a, I'm this. So why would I go and do that? Or, you know, oh, someone else will think of it or someone else will do it. And I look back and I think every one of my projects actually has been a detour. You know, it was never really, each one was never really part of, of a plan at that time, but this inspiration sort of struck and there was this, you know, pull that was saying, look over here and explore this, you know, this is this could be interesting. And I guess I, I just listened to it and I just trusted that and 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 really, you know, put my energy where it felt like it needed to be at that point. Ella Rohardi, my guest from episode 9, can push the limits of design and sustainable living with her buildings made out of bamboo. And the impact is cyclical. In pursuing our own creativity, we create art that inspires and at the same time seek inspiration from others so that we too can stay inspired. This was a struggle for us because in being innovative and groundbreaking and also being in a place where there isn't a strong culture in Bali of like... Um, artistic ownership. Traditionally in Bali, it's a communal participation in an art form that, that is in the service of a temple or a, or a palace. And there isn't so much a sense culturally, traditionally of like, this is my individual creation, this is my artistic property. And so everything that happens here has a sense of a ripple effect and what we've done really has. So there's a lot of people working with bamboo in Bali and now more and more around the world inspired by us. And so in one sense, that's great. Bamboo is being, um, bamboo is, a, is an amazing resource and it should be used around the world. But the challenge is when it isn't being taken up the next rung. What I wanna see is people out in the world creating the next amazing contextual way of using that kind of bamboo in that place for that purpose that in turn I can be proud of and inspired by, rather than um, imitation, replication, without the grounding in the actual skills and process that went into creating the original. Mm -hmm. I want to see where this song is sampled in a way that I'm so excited about, but not um, in a way that feels like, um, like, like nothing's been added. Mm -hmm. I want to see it go up the rungs of the ladder. And I, and I want to be inspired by 
other creators around the world, working with bamboo in new ways. And I have found that when artists feel free to pursue their own curiosity, to follow the white rabbit and see where it takes you, we start to see the realms of what's possible being shattered. I've been watching a lot of long-distance running at the moment. I have a great respect for endurance sport. There's something about the physical and mental discipline that I really admire. I watched Kenyan marathon runner Eliud Kipchoge run 26.2 miles in under two hours, one hour 59 and 40 seconds to be precise. To get your head around it, it's about four and a half minutes a mile. That's really fast. It's staggering, to be honest. One of the most elegant runners I've seen, he makes it look effortless like he's dancing. In doing what no one has done before, he opens up the way for someone to take it further, to run faster. Yet it's not really about pioneering for me for the sake of pioneering. Rather, it's pursuing the passion, the idea, the curiosity, and the byproduct is breaking boundaries. So I guess what I want to say, if you're not sure, if you need convincing like I did, art matters. It's valuable. We are like those singing canaries in the coal mines. As Beatty says, art reflects our humanity. Here she is again. When you see how deep music goes, um, and even beyond you know, memory, familiarity, all these things that we thought we knew about how it worked uh, and why it was able to you know, uh, reawaken people with uh, autism, schizophrenia, Parkinson's dementia in a way that you know, nothing else was able to. And I think we just sometimes forget, you know, that we're that we're human beings, and actually, um, we just we want to feel connected, we want to feel moved, we want to feel uplifted, and you know, the wonderful thing about art is it reflects our humanity, but it also reflects something of our divinity, you know, the best side of our nature, and so that's why it inspires and it and it sort of transcends so many things um so i feel like with technology you know it fast tracked a lot but it also fast tracked a lot of what it means to be human and without the true cost or value sort of reflected in the process um so my my work really is about i think fo refocusing on these experiences that i think are core to our humanity and which will never go out of fashion. Um, but I ha have used technology as almost a way of almost just like a, a sprinkling of dust to, you know, give something a kind of a, a new presentation. So while the presentation is different, the core is very familiar. Then there's the even deeper issue of valuing ourselves. This is a deep one for me, and I hope you don't mind me getting a little personal. I had a coaching session a few weeks ago because I was feeling a little overwhelmed with all the different things I'm juggling, and I wanted some help to unpack it all. What transpired, as is often the case, is not what I expected at all. I thought I would be given some practical tools to manage my workload, but the real issue had nothing to do with workload and everything to do with emotional load. Sometimes we carry burdens we're not aware of. Erica Badu has that song, Bag Lady. I think that instead of carrying burdens, a more accurate description would be like phantom limbs where amputees feel pain in a limb that does not exist. Something that's not physically there but has a presence because it causes pain. I think burdens can sometimes feel like this. 
the pressure or the desire to live up to societal expectations, or our favourite new buzzword, influence, money and power, the wrestle of needing approval from your family, yet at the same time not wanting to care about what they think, what your friends think, what social media thinks. Is something good because someone has clicked like on that image or retweeted that comment or watched your YouTube video millions of times? Of course not. Of course your value isn't determined by these external things. Of course your value is innate simply because you're a human being. Yet still, it is because we've commodified art so much. Likes, retweets, followers, views, etc, etc means influence and status and money. I mean, in order to gain traction with this podcast, I need listeners. So somewhere I'd been internalising some things, some pain that was impacting on how I was viewing myself and my work. And here's the thing, if you don't think you and your work are valuable, you won't charge the right amount, you'll take work that is poorly paid, you won't put yourself forward for certain jobs, I should know I've done all of those things. And of course, there are real issues with the system itself, but I'm discovering that the more I'm able to value myself, the better I'm able to self-advocate, because there are some people in the industry that are doing very nicely, thank you. We got into this in a great bonus episode on money and the music industry with Sam Campbell, Shruti Kumar again, Alev Lenz and Honey Onile Eri. Um... Because I, I looked at, at my notes and the answer, it literally says, how have you learned to self-advocate? And it says the hard way. <laughs> um, it, just because it's been so um, great to listen um, to all of you and just to say to Shruti, it's exactly that thing when you, you your payment is like, you're paving the way. It's been paved. I'm, I'm driving a car now. Like, it's kind of like, okay, it's, you know, we can, and that's the thing of like this, making you think you're this isolated person who has to now fight but people women especially have been fighting for so long um and yeah self-advocate it's just when you how I mean have I learned it is the question and and I think it's just by the pain when you haven't when you know you didn't that is so bad that you then learn to avoid it like okay I'm gonna do this differently next time and what I'm did as well is very similar to what Sam did I've worked a long time to get to like a base rate but I actually write it down somewhere like I put the number somewhere and I write it down because also my brain goes into forget mode someone asked me what I charge and I was like oh my god what was it again <laughs> what was our studio day rate again um it was it was uh, I'm charging money for for I love I love what I do I love what I do so I a big thing is I write it down and I I reach one thing that was good and it paid well and I I, well it paid what it should have you know maybe also learning to navigate the language around it it paid what it should have well is actually actually an exaggeration Um, and then I was like okay never now lower than this and that moves every year like it it goes up a bit and I'm like okay now never below this and I have to again write it down because I will forget so that's the kind of yeah loads of notes to self um I was gonna say um actually I think one of the things I love said is I don't know that I have actually learned to self-advocate and and again I I think I am in a fortunate position that you know because I have a name to what I do and there is a more of a structure to what I do so there are certain payments and salary bands and all those kinds of things I honestly think that if I was a, a creator 
who relied on other people's goodwill, I would probably be literally, I would just be like, oh no, whatever you want to pay me, don't be silly. What me? No. And it's funny because obviously, you know, when I'm, when I'm advocating for other people or in the way that I negotiate or in the way that I think I present people are like, no, seriously, you, you know, and, and I, and I, and, and I think that um, it's, in some ways it's very effective you know there's obviously in the negotiating I think one of the, the notes that you've made is you know how do you negotiate sometimes you push hard sometimes you don't you know you, you know your audience but I think that the one thing that I have taught myself or trying to treat myself is to stop being so bloody grateful you know wow. and 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 that's a conversation I have with myself so often my god I'm doing a job I love in a field that I love and you know every time I've tried to have thought about doing anything else you know like being a proper grown-up and and going to do something that you know different and like music is is just at the heart of everything that I am and here I am not just working in it but you know helping a company that sort of is supposedly innovative and is developed um and I'm always like oh, you know god and I'm, I'm getting paid quite well my god you know and I look at my lawyer friends who are either getting paid vastly more but look 30 years older than me or the ones who are doing stuff that really matters, like criminal law and whatever, and they're earning absolutely nothing. So I've spent a lot of time talking myself down from getting paid. And I think that that's one of the first things that you need to do, or I, you know, that we all need to stop being so grateful. And I think, I forget whether it was Sam or Matsy that said it, you know, if you could do, if you can do what I do, do it. It's really that simple. If you don't, if you feel that I'm not worth being paid because you can do it or, or you can get someone to do it cheaper, why are we even having this conversation? What you don't get to do is to get me to do what you want me to do and pay me what you would, you're not prepared to pay someone else because they're not as good as me. So it's, you know, coming back again to what you were saying, Matt, the example of, you know, you go into a store and it's 150 quid. You don't go to them and say, listen, I know it says 150, but I'm kind of in the mood to pay 70. Um, you can't have the 150 pound top. You know, and I think that that's a process. And it's one that I, I personally am still very uncomfortable with, even as I tell, you know, people who ask me the question or who, you know, look to me for sort of, men not mentorship exactly, is as I tell them exactly the right way, I don't do it. <laughs> I'm still, I still find it quite nerve wracking. And, um, and I've been fortunate that often I can have like agencies doing the hard work and kind of like, I think I can probably get more. Do you think I can get more? Can I get more? Okay, no, should I? Okay, you tell, whatever, you know. Um, but I think, yeah, stop being grateful. You know, we are here because we are good at what we do. Um, we are here because people want to work with us. We are here because we provide a service and really it doesn't, you just can't have it both ways. You can't have me and not pay me. Mm. And you can't have me and not pay me what you think the job is worth because you think you can get away with less. Um, so I think that that's how I've kind of, I'm learning to self-advocate is just, and also, you know, take a chance because some people will say, well, actually, no, thank you. And that kind of gets you like here. <laughs> and you're like, oh my God, what have I done? Um, and, and, and I think something that I've, I've really struggled with is not taking that personally. And again, I think it comes back to what somebody said about the need to be liked and the need for approval in, on a level that I'm not even aware of because I am confident and independent or, or blah, blah, blah. But, you know, somebody saying, actually, no thanks, becomes a very physical, personal rejection and actually understand that it isn't that. And that and, and it's not a reason to not try, keep on trying, is how I'm learning to self-advocate.
So on reflection, I got a lot freer this season. Some more unnecessary layers were removed. You will have heard me say this a few times, that I have academic parents, a mother who is a sociologist and a father who's an economist. It was a house of books and intellectual and political discussion. My South African father came to the UK in the 70s as a political refugee, or as he would call it, a freedom fighter, Jumping bail after being put in prison for his anti-apartheid political activism, it meant I spent a lot of my childhood in anti-apartheid PAC, PAC standing for the Pan-Africanist Congress. You could call it the radical, by any means necessary arm of the anti-apartheid movement. So I was in these anti-apartheid PAC meetings, kids falling asleep on two plastic chairs, a coat thrown over as a blanket. In apartheid South Africa, Inferior education, or what was known as Bantu education, was a means to disempower the black majority population, so that for people like my father, it wasn't money or status, but education that was the only means to change your life. It gave you agency, as my dad would often say, education, education, education. And then, a Jamaican mother, a feminist, who was the first in her family to go to university, who in her words said that choosing sociology was a way for her to make sense of her own life. Me and my siblings were raised with an extremely strong sense of who we were, which for better or for worse was at odds with the white middle-class norm that we were surrounded by. So when I wanted a Barbie doll, my father said that as a black child he didn't want me to think that those were the normative standards of beauty. And with a feminist mother, my mother didn't want me to get caught up with gendered stereotypes of toys for girls. My sister laughs about the fact that she always wanted a kitchen when she was little and was refused on the grounds that my mother didn't want her to think that all little girls did was play house. I laugh about it now and I also totally understand their reasoning, but what it also does is create a weight of responsibility on children that through no fault of my parents' own was also the world we were in. Education, as I said, was a way out, an education that led to a workable profession that had societal impact that built and served the advancement of black people around the world. And I get it. And in many ways, I agree with it. And, you know, I'd say I live my life by that still. But sometimes you just want a Barbie doll, you know, or to pretend to cook in your pretend pink kitchen. My story isn't different to many first generation immigrant families. And we understand why. When you live in cultures that think about their lives in context of the wider community rather than the individual, your life choices impact not only yourself, but how your parents are seen by other families. Your child's success is also your success. The political comedian Hassan Minhaj talks about that in a really funny way in his comedy special, Homecoming King. And of course, there's success. And it's not just any type of success. It's the right type of success through the right type of profession. Banker, lawyer, doctor, engineer, accountant. I have a number of friends who did the unpardonable and left degrees in law or medicine to become artists. It was cause for great laughter when we did the money episode about how our parents still after so many years viewed our music industry career choices. Um, my family, uh, parents are academics. I trained as a lawyer. So I'm a bit like you, Shruti. You did economics for the family. I did law for the family, <laughs> you know. So for me, music was kind of what middle class kids did on a Saturday, you know. It was like this fun hobby that you did that was good to get into a good school, but it wasn't a career choice. So when I decided to pursue it as a job, somewhat, it took me so long to believe that my work had the same value as if I had gone and chosen to be a lawyer. 
And so it affected what I asked for when it came to money, the jobs that I took on, because I was like, well, it's somewhere I was like, it's still a hobby, it's still a hobby, it's still a hobby. And if you don't get paid for a hobby, you know, you get might get some pocket money, some travel money, you know what I mean? But you don't get like proper pay. And so the moment I was like, you know what, I think I'm actually good at this. This is my job. So I now need to be paid accordingly. That was a really big thing. And, uh, and, and, and so I'm laughing at the comments. <laughs> so she's just going, you know, definitely Indians. And Alan's like, I thought the hobby thing was just Germans. No, it's Germans, it's Indians, it's Africans. It's the whole gambit. But then the second thing I've really learned is to ask, know who to ask. <laughs> and then Honey said, I'll raise you Indians and give you Nigerians. <laughs> I need to focus, <laughs> Sorry. but um, you know, I've learned to ask. So I have a few people in my life that um, I've asked to be like accountable. They'll know if I'm like, should I charge this? They're like, do you know how many, how much other people are charging? And that has really, really, really made me, really helped me. So now, now Sam has gone, I see, I see your Nigerian and raise you a Jamaican. <laughs> yeah, so basically all sort of, well, it seems like everybody thinks that music is a hobby, not a job. Like, it doesn't matter where you're from. So, it's but just, sorry, Max, just on that point, I mean, I, you know, I'm now head of legal. I've been head of legal for a long time, I'm director of business affairs. I'm head of legal of a big company. I think I'm doing reasonably well. And to this day, it's kind of like, you're never going to be a judge. I'm like, oh, all right, I give up. And, 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 what, and what really gets my parents is like, because they were terrified I was going to become a musician. I was going to be a singer or an actress or whatever. And so I was like, well, you know, I've got, I mean, to me, the best of both worlds. My mum is, my mum was always cool, but my dad was always like, hmm, yeah, well, you know, someday you could have been a judge. And I'm like, right, I give up. I actually give up. That's it. <laughs> my dad, to this day, still introduces me as a barrister. I'm like, I haven't done that since, I don't know, 2000. I don't even remember the last time. He's like, this is my daughter, the barrister. I'm like, uh. And what's any of this got to do with music? Well, if you are raised to believe that there is only one way to live, banker, lawyer, accountant, engineer, etc., and that everything you do has an impact on the wider community, the black community, your family, women, it's a lot of stuff to carry. And please don't get me wrong, I think raising our kids to be individualistic is a casualty of Western democracies, but homogeneity, where we have no individual identity, doesn't work either. One makes people extremely selfish, the other crushes people's spirits, and in both instances, makes us very isolated. I suppose I'm saying this in a very long-winded way, but it's about freedom to be ourselves. And when we do that, we have courage to go against the grain, like musician and singer Pura Fey from episode 6. This is a very interesting story for me in terms of independent artists and where artists go, because you could have signed Tommy Matola, who was the label exec at Sony, you know, signed Mariah Carey and all the, you could have signed with them. Anita Baker's management, I think you sang with her at some point, they wanted to sign you. Right. Usually that someone's like, oh, you know, this is who I want to go with. You know, I want to be a mega star and so on. But you chose, <laughs> a you know, you chose a different way. Tell me about that process, how you, how you came to not choose that. Um, well, really, they always wanted you to do things that um, just really went against my moral compass. Is that what you call it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, and uh, I just couldn't. Um, I really like real music. I love real music. And I like roots music from everywhere. Mm 
Mm -hmm. So, and and tribal music and real expression. And I've always been, I think I was born with a fist in the air. So, (laughs) (laughs) so it, and the, the commercial music just did not, um, it just wasn't going to work for me. Yeah. Yeah, They wanted me to do things that were just so against my, Mm -hmm. and without any creative, um, control. Mm-hmm. And um, there were some that wanted to dress me up in like, you know, some strange outfits. Yeah. And yeah. I was like, oh, no, I'm not going there. So- <laughs> I was speaking to a really lovely friend of mine who makes very beautiful clothes. At some point, I hope to have him on the show. And he said to me, the thing he admires most about me isn't actually being a musician, but having the courage to leave the law and pursue my passion. I don't say this to big myself up. I say it because if you're listening to this and you're an artist or you're someone who may be contemplating switching careers to pursue art, I want you to know that being an artist is courageous. I never understood or even believed that before, but I believe it now. Being yourself, I mean truly being yourself, to express it through your books, your films, your dance, your paintings, your songs, your photography, your poetry, your art, it's an act of courage. And I don't want to overemphasise our importance either. I guess it's simply to say that what we do does matter. You may be thinking, why me? There are loads of people who do what I do way better. You may think, you're not ready, blah, 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 blah. We know all the excuses that we make. To that I would say, well, why not you? So, as we draw this season to an end, I'm also thinking about the future how I can build holding up the ladder into more of a resource space, into more of a space to share work from all kinds of creatives from all around the world doing amazing things. So if you have any ideas, do get in touch. So I want to end by thanking all my guests in this season for taking their time to share their process. I've learned so much. To Lisa Anderson, Heidi Vogel, BT Wolf, Pierre Tiam, Leroy Jason, Pura Fay, Makoto Fujimura, Ramona Harris, Daly, Alev Lenz, Shruti Kumar, Honey O'Neill Eri, Sam Campbell, and Ella Rahadi. And a huge thank you to Susan Chibarije, who has been managing all the social media and analytics, but mostly to all of you for listening. Do continue to follow us on Twitter at HUTL underscore and Instagram at Holding Up the Ladder. Hashtag H-U-T-L. Share, like, subscribe to the podcast, tell your friends. You can also donate. The link is in the podcast blurb. I look forward to sharing more exciting guests with you in season three. I'm off to take a break now from producing a podcast and putting what I've learned into practice. Until next time.